Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. Good morning, church. You get a lot of good mornings, don't you? Well, good morning. I'm Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. You were smart. You came to the first service. They're still parking, like at least a block away or so. In an hour, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be across Mulberry, four or five blocks away. So you guys are the smart ones. So welcome. I'm glad you're here. We are going to study God's Word together this morning. We're going to see how Jesus is everywhere. We're going to feel some of the emotions that the Psalms bring out in us and some of the circumstances that are there. We're going to study Psalm 31 this morning. And it may seem somewhat familiar as we read it because this Psalm has a lot of the similar words and phrases that we've seen in the Psalms previous, in the previous weeks we've gone through it. But, but yet, please don't think it's the same thing just over again. This psalm is different, it's, it's unique, and yet it's powerful. In fact, this particular psalm has resonated with people through the centuries. In fact, other biblical characters have used this psalm. People like Jeremiah, and Jonah, and even Jesus himself quotes a line from this psalm in one of his prayers at a particularly significant moment in his life. After all, this is what the Psalms are, right? They're prayers, they're, they're poetry dealing with the realities of the human condition. There's no blunting that. The realities of the human condition before a good and sovereign God. And as such, the Psalms give our own prayers vocabulary and direction. We need these. No matter what we're facing, no matter what we're feeling. So far this summer, we've seen Psalms that have covered all kinds of emotions, haven't we? from joy to sorrow. We've seen it all. These very circumstances that make up the human condition. And yet, yet we must, we must remember that simply a rehearsal of the human condition, just a rehearsal of what we're feeling and experiencing doesn't make up a psalm, right? The psalms express the human condition before a good and sovereign God. God's never out of focus here. He's never absent. Whether it's joy or pain being expressed, it is always expressed before our good and sovereign God. This is one of the reasons why we need these psalms so badly. We desperately need them. They remind us of truth as we experience similar emotions and circumstances to those who wrote the psalms. Objective truth of which we desperately need to be reminded, especially when we're in the moment of that difficulty. So Psalm 31 is no different. Psalm 31 is going to help us apply a particular truth about God to our feelings and circumstances. But what's the circumstance behind Psalm 31? Like, what motivated David, assuming he's the author, to actually write this psalm in the first place? Well, the circumstance is actually a tough one for me because it causes all kinds of emotions with me, all kinds of memories with me to well back up. From putting together the few clues we have throughout Psalm 31, I think it's likely that David is facing false accusations. Facing false accusations is tough. 
Have you ever been accused of something serious but falsely that you, in fact, you were indeed innocent? Have you felt all the various emotions and the fears that then arise? I have a really hard time with people believing something about me that just simply isn't true. I mean, it, it can even be something silly, like, like I'm just joking. So sometimes I tell people that Keanu Reeves is my cousin. Right? We have the same last name, we look identical. Keanu Reeves is my cousin. But I can only let it hang for about a minute or so because I can't let people believe something about me that isn't true. But what if the accusation is about something that's really serious? That one is much tougher for me. It's, it's one thing to accuse me of something I deserve. It's a whole other thing to accuse me of something of which I'm innocent. Uh, many years ago at a previous place of employment, one of my female coworkers became a bit disgruntled with me about some decisions I was making related to the organization. So for whatever reason, she decided to meet with another one of my female coworkers after work and got her dinner. And she proceeded to share with my other female coworker her rationale for why she thought I was making the decisions she made. And her rationale was that she accused me of being romantically interested in yet a third female coworker I had at the time. Now remember, I'm happily married at this time. And yet she's accusing me of being romantically interested in another coworker. And I didn't learn of this accusation until months later, after my coworker was no longer employed there. But the poison of that false accusation had an impact. Looking back, I mean, it now makes sense why there's some relational weirdness between me and some of the coworkers who found out about it. it makes sense. Now, now it makes sense. Accusations like this have relational ripples. And we can't control those. They continue to go out and out and out and out and out. But perhaps the bigger impact was on my heart itself and on how I processed this. See, I couldn't simply go back to this person to talk about it because she didn't work with me anymore. And quite frankly, I didn't care to see her again. When I found out, I felt many emotions, as you can imagine. I was furious. I was deeply disappointed. I was embarrassed. <laughs> I felt disbelief, and I also felt somehow violated. My integrity, not to mention my marriage, wasn't just questioned. It was completely thrown under the bus. And it was for a reason that was completely fabricated so that my one coworker could somehow benefit. So how in the world do we then apply truths about God to situations like this? What about God do we need to be reminded of? How do we even start to pray when we face situations like this? What do we do with the emotions that we feel? What do we even pray for? It's a good thing we have Psalm 31. It's going to guide us. It's going to address these questions. So open up your Bibles or navigate on your electronic device to Psalm 31. We're going to work through this book. Uh, sorry, not this book. We're not going to do the entire book. We're going to work through the Psalm 31 in chunks again this morning because I want us to feel how it unfolds. As we read it, be looking for what truth, what picture about God we see, then how David applies that to his particular situation. Let's start by reading verses 1 through 2 of Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. So, right out of the gate, what truth about God is David needing and focusing upon? 
David approaches God as his refuge. And David pleads with God to be exactly that. David's seeking protection and rescue. Listen to these phrases. Deliver me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. When I was accused those years ago, I needed God as my refuge when I didn't even know it. (laughs) For my integrity and reputation behind my back. And he chose to provide exactly that, at least for me in my situation. Thankfully, no one else in the organization believed this accusation. And this way, God chose to protect me. See, David, too, is on the defense here. He's feeling attacked. He's seeking a strong refuge. And there's a sense of urgency here, isn't there? Rescue me speedily. These false accusations that David is facing is a pressing issue and is stirring within his heart a fear of shame. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. The false accusations are threatening to bring David public disgrace. David's in need of a refuge. The shame is not a private issue, and it's motivating motivating David to write this psalm. So, how can we start our prayers in the midst of our own distress? I want us to notice one thing at the end of verse 1. It reads, in your righteousness deliver me. David acknowledges God as righteous rather than giving in to our tendency to blame God for the current situation or approaching God suspiciously. That perhaps David's stressful situation is proof that God's character has actually changed. David doesn't dispute God's righteousness. No, God is still good and sovereign. He's still righteous and he has the power over the situation and can be a help to David. And so David calls upon God's very character as grounds for God to act. We see a confidence in God's character. My my friends, please don't miss this. If you've been redeemed by Jesus, we can confidently approach this God. And we can confidently call upon his very character as grounds for our prayers for him to act. We can start our prayers by simply stating this truth and thanking God for them. But keep in mind, we can't manipulate God in this way. You know what I mean? Like, we can just say the right words in the right way, then we can force God to give us the answer we want to, we want to seek. We can't do that. This is one way our prayers can be guided when we need rescue. We can pray for God to show himself to us as being consistent with who we know God to already be. This isn't to say God is ever inconsistent with his character, but we don't always see it, do we? Nor do we always understand how God's action is always consistent with his character. Our perspectives are limited. So, verses 1 through 2, David calls upon God's character as grounds for God to act. This is how Psalm 31 guides us to start our prayers when we are at a loss for words. We can call upon God's character. David urgently needs God to be his refuge his fortress. He needs this, but, but what does David need to do? What is David's role here? Let's read on, verses 3 through 8. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. 
You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You've set my feet in a broad place. <laughs> Immediately, after asking God to be his refuge in his fortress, what does David do? He immediately then confesses his confidence that God is indeed those very things. God trusts, David trusts God's character. We've seen this before. Yet again, here's this dynamic of praying to God to be who we already know him to be and asking him to do what we already know he will do. So verses 3 through 8 are a massive confession of confidence in this God. David rehearses and, pr and prays truths about God. Our picture of God in the psalm is being expanded. And, and this should catch our attention. Before David expresses anything further about what he's feeling or about his situation, he takes much time and space to express confidence in who God really is. Yeah, I wonder if part of the reason David seems to often pray this way is because he needs to remind himself of these truths because he too needs to be reminded. Even appealing to God's namesake in verse 3 to lead and guide is another way of asking God in his righteousness, his namesake, to deliver him, like we saw back in verse 1. David asks for it and then immediately confesses confidence in it as a fact. You and I need to be reminded of truth regularly, don't we? Of who God is, of how he works. Truth of the gospel, we need these reminders. It doesn't matter how well you know God and know the gospel. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many books you've read, how much education you have, how long you've walked with Jesus. We still need to be reminded of these gospel truths. We all need it, especially when we're encountering really, really difficult circumstances. Life circumstances and the emotions we feel have a powerful, funny, and often distorting impact on our own view of God and life and ourselves, doesn't it? This is why we need Christian community, each other, to remind each other what is actually true when we're feeling these subjective feelings about that truth. We need to be reminded of God, our rock, our refuge, who doesn't change according to our feelings, Objective truth about God and ultimate reality about you and me and life and where all of history is going doesn't change. This truth isn't relative. It is in this that David's confidence in God, who God is and what God does, motivates the striking declaration that we now read in verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. The word for spirit here indicates David's entire being, the thing that animates him, the thing that sums up all of his life. So David essentially states, I trust you with all of me. The grounds of this trust are then in the second part of verse 5. God's character, his faithfulness, and the outworking of that character is redemption of David. Into your hands I commit my spirit, you've redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. This is quite the statement of surrender, isn't it? 
So what does David need to do? What is his role in all of this? This is David's glorious role, to trust God with his distress. That's David's role, to trust God. David calls upon God's character and then trusts God with all of his distress. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Jesus himself, our Savior, chose to use these very words as his very last, right before he died on the cross. How fitting they are. You see, David prays that God would protect him from the shame back in verse 1, but it is exactly this that Jesus experienced. Jesus experienced the very thing David is pleading with God to avoid. Consider this. Consider the incredible public disgrace Jesus experienced. Being interrogated and scourged and mocked and humiliated and stripped of his clothes and put up on a cross to die for everyone to see. Any passerby could gawk at Jesus. As Jesus is feeling all this pain and public disgrace, right before he dies, he cries out, Into your hands I commit my spirit. For Jesus, God the Father did not shield him from the shame, did he? Yet still, Jesus trusted. And get this, all of Jesus' sufferings were for our benefit. God sent Jesus' own son to live the perfect life we never could, and to bear the punishment that we deserved, not him, for our own sin. This was the only way to restore broken humanity's relationship to this God. There was no other way. And Jesus trusted the Father even in the midst of excruciating pain, even through public disgrace. Jesus trusted and surrendered to the Father's will and eventually even surrendered his own life. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Is this a prayer that we can pray, you and me? When we face this distress, can we pray this prayer? In John chapter 15, Jesus himself said that we should expect to be treated poorly because he himself was treated poorly. Can we also pray his prayer? Into your hand I commit my spirit. Psalm 31 encourages us to do exactly that. To fully trust, a real trust. We call upon God's character, trusting him with all of our distress. And the trust here is deeper and it precedes a favorable outcome to our difficult situation. We, we don't first wait for God to rescue us from all of our difficult circumstances and then boldly declare our trust in him after the fact. David's statement here coincides with what he already confidently knows about God's character and actions. God has already proven himself, so to speak. He's redeemed it, David. It's past tense. As a result, David's confidence in God soars. I believe this confidence in God can guide our prayers to be something like this. God, no matter how this particular situation resolves, I trust you with all that I am. You will take care of me. Is that hard to pray in the moment? Absolutely it's hard to pray in the moment. But if we believe God to be who Scripture says he is, then nothing else actually makes more sense. If he really is sovereign and good, if he really has redeemed us from death by the blood of Jesus, then it actually makes less sense to not fully trust him with all we are in our present circumstances and turn to someone or something else instead. 
In fact, looking to anything else to save us is no more effective than asking a wooden statue to save us. In verse 6, David gets this, and he dramatically distinguishes himself from those who would seek salvation elsewhere. The phrase here, worthless idols in the Hebrew, is literally vain vanities. <laughs> David is in relationship with the one true God. In comparison, all of our idols are nothing nothings. They're vain vanities. Our idols of money and power and comfort and happiness and possessions and education and intelligence and the right relationships and on and on and on. Nothing but vain vanities. These things we ask to rescue us and provide us with what only God can provide, true joy, true salvation, we so often live as though we do not believe God is who he says he is. Look at this in verses 7 through 8. In contrast to these idols, these vain vanities, God has already proven his precious, steadfast love in the past. We have reason to believe God is who he says he is. He's proven this loyal, faithful, covenantal love that uniquely describes the one true God. He's heard our prayers. He's known and seen our distresses. These distresses, which in the Hebrew carries the connotations of tight spaces, you're wedged in there, of straits. And he's acting on our behalf, turning them into broad or spacious places. Get this. David knows his prayers are heard by this God himself. And he's confident this will result in God's gracious action on his behalf. David isn't banking on luck. He doesn't wonder what fate may decide for him. He isn't concerned about the alignment of the stars or the wisdom of the Buddha or what Allah might think. The one true God of the universe, David's fortress and refuge, has heard him. This is the focus so far in Psalm 31. The sort of God to whom David prays to and in whom God David trusts. A righteous God who is our refuge and fortress. Who, unlike worthless idols, this is a God who has already proven himself to know our distress and act on our behalf. We trust in this God. When you're in distress, do you need to be reminded about these truths about God? I know I do. David did. And now that David has rehearsed these truths about who God is, to whom he is praying, he now is going to show us what we can do with all those emotions that we feel, all those varied emotions, these strong emotions we feel in our distress. Get ready. Get ready for this lament. David doesn't hold back. I'm curious if you can relate to any of these emotions we're going to read. Let's read verses 9 through 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Again. 
Again, we see David's statements of confidence in who God is now turn yet again to a plea for God to be that same God within these very same distresses. There's this back and forth. David now pleads again. What David is feeling is intense. And he unloads his emotion before his good and sovereign God. This is how Psalm 31 guides us with the emotions that we feel. What do we do with them? We trust God with all of them. We call upon God's character, trusting him with all of our distress and emotion. These emotions that I felt of, of anger, of, of furious, of embarrassment, of personal violation, of disappointment, Psalm 31 coaches me to name them for what they are and then to entrust them to my good and sovereign God. Well, what, what's, what's David feeling? David, David feels incredibly estranged from other people, doesn't he? Even from his friends, people treat him differently. They run from him or pretend he doesn't even exist or even plot to harm him. David's relationship with other people have not only been affected, but they've been crushed. They've disintegrated and other people have become suspicious of him. And here's where we come to the core emotion in this psalm. It's isolation. David is experiencing relational isolation from his friends, his acquaintances, his neighbors. His enemies are closing in. David's become relationally isolated. And he doesn't back away from describing exactly how it feels. His entire being, this very thing he fully committed to God back in verse 5, here in verse 9 is wasting away from grief and sorrow. His strength is failing, verse 10. David feels completely isolated and alone. Have you felt that? Are you currently feeling that? False accusations, slander, has a way of affecting our relationships, doesn't it? It changes our relationships, whether or not we're even aware it's happening. It doesn't matter even if we're innocent. It still affects them. We must watch what we say about other people. This impact is too great. False accusations have a powerful relational ripple effect. They influence the way we view other people, whether or not they're actually true. Have you experienced this? Have you felt what it feels like to be on the receiving end of these false accusations? I want us to notice that David actually takes the time and the space to describe to God exactly what he's feeling. It doesn't matter that God already knows. Did you hear that? It doesn't matter that God already knows. I think sometimes we go there as an excuse to not do it. God already knows, and yet David still goes into detail using well-crafted poetry to heighten the effect, to make his emotions more vivid before his God, who is his refuge and his fortress, and who already knows David's distress. We need this encouragement to do the same. We trust God with our emotions. We name it for what it is. Please don't pretend that it doesn't exist, that you don't feel. <laughs> God designed humanity to have emotion. This is how we're designed. It's part of the package deal. In fact, I'm learning that sometimes what I'm feeling is a better and more clear indicator of what's going on inside my heart than what I'm thinking. In this way, emotions are a gift to us. If I'm feeling angry, why? If I'm feeling anxious about an upcoming meeting, why? 
I'm learning to take my emotions to God so he can help me and show me what's going on inside my heart. He can sort it out. There's something going on in there. You see, I'm learning to use my emotions devotionally. Years later, after being falsely accused, I still feel some of that emotion. It's years later. Just this past month, a trusted friend of mine happens to also be a counselor. He had me do a little project. He, he had me do something similar to what we see in Psalm 31. He asked me to write a letter about what I would say to my false accuser. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? You see, my old co-worker isn't even aware that I know that she made the accusation that she made. She isn't aware of how I feel or what I think about it. But I still have emotions. I still have thoughts surrounding it. It's caused me a lot of pain. I'm hoping that God will finally fully heal that. And so like David's lament, I wrote them all out. I found that one of my main motivating emotions was this innate desire for justice. At least how I wanted to see it happen. In my imagination, if I'm honest, I want a judge to sit us both down and look at her, wave his finger, and say, you lied, you were wrong, and shame on you. The shame, the embarrassment, the public disgrace that I felt, so to speak, even though the accusations were false, in my less holy moments, I want her to feel exactly that instead. She should be embarrassed. She's the one who made this stuff up. But can I even express that? Can I even praise that? Can I trust God with those raw emotions? I at times feel this way, but should I just stuff it instead? Here again, Psalm 31 guides us. What exactly does David pray for? Let's look. Verses 14 through 22. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. David does indeed pray for justice. Do you see that? Verses 17 through 18. He asks God to shut their mouths and to pour on them what they're attempting to pour on him. David asks for the wrongs to be turned on their own heads. In short, Psalm 31 guides us to indeed express our desire for justice to a God who can be trusted to bring about justice perfectly. You can listen to our sermon on Psalm 28. We go much more in detail about praying for justice. David prays for exactly this, for justice. It is okay to pray for justice. But, but notice this. Justice is not primarily what David is praying for here. Catch this. 
In the midst of David's distress and feeling relationally isolated, David now prays for and celebrates two aspects of a grand reversal of sorts. This is profound. Immediately following David expressing all of his emotions, the isolation, the weakness, the grief, immediately following, he then declares in verse 14, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. You see, David didn't share this emotion as proof that God somehow failed him or that God isn't worthy of his trust anymore. It's not me saying, God, these false accusations have caused me to be furious and disappointed and embarrassed and violated. If you really were taking care of me, if you were really doing your job and being who you say that you are, I shouldn't have to feel these emotions. I hereby relinquish my trust in you and will find somebody or something else better instead. No, no, no. David isn't fooled. David doesn't rely on his emotions to put God on trial. Even if his emotions could tempt him to flee from God, David doesn't buy it. He cries out, but I trust in you. This is a renewal of the incredible declaration of trust we saw back in verses 5 and 6. But it's not only that. Hear this. It is here, with this God, that David declares relationship. That David seeks a deeper relationship. He goes on in verse 16 to play off that famous and ancient blessing found in Numbers chapter 6. Make your face shine on your servant. Not only is David asking for a blessing here, he's asking for God to be near. This Hebrew word for face, panim, make your face shine, is also used to indicate a person being present, as seeing, as knowing, as nearness. Essentially, David, in the midst of feeling isolated, he calls out for God to be near. David takes his relational isolation from other people and seeks God's presence. Again, in verse 20, David celebrates that it's God's presence that's with the righteous, and that his presence will protect them from the false accusations of the wicked. This is a wonderful outworking of God's steadfast love in verse 21. This is the first aspect of this grand reversal. God's presence addresses David's isolation. God's presence is precious to David, and it addresses his isolation. In fact, a fear that God's presence has been removed that God is no longer near, terrifies David. This is underscored in verse 22. David's fear of being cut off from God's sight or a severed relationship with this God. Indeed, it is the very nearness of God that David treasures, even above seeing justice done. God's presence means protection, a refuge, a fortress. Psalm 31 guides our prayers when we are in distress by encouraging us to pray for God's nearness. Even though we know theologically that God is everywhere at all times, yet we still pray for God's presence. We seek God's presence. How do we do that? How do we seek God's presence? We read the Bible, His Word. We pray. We spend time in Christian community, like this morning. We intentionally use our time and our resources to know Him better. 
If you're unsure how to do that or how to get started, I would love to talk to you. I'll be up here afterwards. See, we call on God's character, seeking him and trusting him with all our distress and emotions. But there's one more occurrence of this idea of presence or sight that I passed over earlier. Look back at verse 19. Here we see the second aspect of this grand reversal described. This is verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. God will show goodness to his own, and then get this, it will be done publicly, (laughs) or as David puts it, in the sight of the children of mankind. This is a grand reversal. Do you catch this? Just as David feared disgrace publicly, God will show goodness to his own publicly. From disgrace to God's goodness, from defensive isolation to protective nearness, a grand reversal that only God himself can do. But for you and I, if we trust Jesus to save us, God's accomplished even a greater grand reversal for us, hasn't he? By the work of Jesus, God has brought us from death to life. This is the greatest reversal the world has ever known and will ever know. It's been bought for us by Jesus our Savior. No wonder Jesus is our focal point here every Sunday morning as we worship. Because of Jesus, the mouth of our ultimate accuser, Satan, will be shut for eternity and will be in God's presence. This is worth celebrating. This isn't you. If you aren't sure what all this celebration is about or who this Jesus is, I would love to hear your story. If you're not comfortable with me because I'm too tall and skinny, I would love to connect you with some other women in the church, other men in the church. They want to hear your story. But now, David concludes this grand psalm in the only appropriate way. Let's read this. Last two verses, 23 through 24. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. And let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Now, by this time, we should think, of course, it's only natural, right? The only logical response we could have to this God and to his love for us is to love him and rely on him for our protection and the execution of justice. This is part of God's very character. See, our job, our job is to wait expectantly, to eagerly watch on the edges of our seats for God to be God and to act in ways consistent with his great character. That is difficult. And so we need David's exhortation to be strong and to allow our hearts to take courage as we wait on God rather than run to vain vanity. This God whom we trust with all of our emotions and circumstances, this God whose presence we seek, In the midst of our distress, we call upon God's character, seeking and loving him and trusting him with all of our distress and emotions. But we need help. Let's pray to our glorious God to give us that courage and strengthen our hearts as we wait on him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you have done in history. It is finished. It is done. You've redeemed us. You've paid the price. You've sacrificed your very son so we can be in relationship to you. 
You've done the greatest reversal that the world will ever know. You've taken your own from death to life, and so we thank you and we praise you for that. We worship you for that, God. And God, you also know that doesn't mean the Christian life is all roses. We, we encounter a lot of junk in this life, a lot of brokenness, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of distress. And we need your help to wait upon you and to rely upon your character as we're facing that pain and all that distress. We can't do that on our own. I pray that we would be a community that could encourage each other, remind each other of objective truth about who you are, even in the midst of the pain and the distress. We need your help with all of this, Father. You know our distress better than we do. We praise you for that. And you know us better than we know ourselves, and that you still decided to redeem us. 